You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thank you as always for joining us. A lot going on. We're coming up on a big election, which in many ways has already begun since there's uh, early voting and vote by mail uh, for so many of you. I'll give you an update on that and our concerns about election integrity. Uh, plus new developments in the Elon Musk saga over at Twitter. Uh, you'll be uh, interested to know his reaction to a tweet I sent out about the left's obsession with censorship. Uh, we have two new lawsuits, important lawsuits about the COVID vaccine cover-up and the cover-up about the worst corruption scandal in American history, uh, which is the illicit targeting of President Trump by the Obama gang. Uh, we have a big lawsuit there to try to get more detail uh, about information and activity that goes straight into the Obama White House Oval Office. First up, uh, election day is coming up. It will be next week. I don't know who's going to win. Um, Judicial Watch doesn't advocate for or against any candidates, but I guess I can guess as to who's going to win and to what the numbers might be. Uh, you know, put below what you think is going to happen on Tuesday. I suspect uh, my, my current guess is, and it's just barely educated, is that it's going to be 54-54. I think there's going to be 54 Republicans uh, in the Senate. And I think in the House, picking a number, I think 54 is probably a reasonable guess as to how many seats the Republicans are uh, going to pick up. Uh, but we'll see. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't vote one way or another. If you're a Republican, be sure to vote. If you're a Democrat, be sure to vote. If you choose to vote. And uh, you also, in my view, should, uh, in, in the, at this late stage, you should really think about voting in person. Uh, if you can't do that and you want to take, available, uh, take advantage of any options to not vote in person, you need to check with your, uh, your, the state rules and see what you're able to do. Uh, but of course, this is part of the big debate, isn't it? It's about voting in person versus voting early and having all these massive uh, 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 efforts to have uh, people vote by mail. And many, many Americans have voted by mail, including uh, voting by mail as far back as 45 days before the election. And the big debate is, uh, should elections be decided on election day or should they be decided as the result of counting after election day? And uh, election experts have raised questions about uh, the practice of counting after election day. Now, of course, the left media and big tech are saying, oh, it's perfectly normal to be deciding elections days and weeks after election, after election day. Uh, there's nothing normal about that. It's a recent development in, a, in terms of having elections all over the country decided in that fashion. Certainly 2020 was controversial because that's how the election was ultimately decided. Now, in Illinois, they count ballots that arrive, not ballots that arrive by Election Day, but ballots that arrive by up to 14 days after Election Day, including uh, ballots that are not postmarked. Uh, and which we think is illegal. Judicial Watch is suing on behalf of uh, Congressman Bost out there, BOST, and, and some other voters in Illinois. Uh, we'll see what the judge does. I don't, at this late stage, I don't know if the judge is going to do anything, but certainly he's going to be in a position to do something about making sure the law is followed in 2024. And the law is that elections are supposed to take place more or less on Election Day. And not to put too fine a point on it. And when you count ballots after Election Day, either ballots received on Election Day that you didn't get around to counting until who knows when, or count ballots even worse that come in after Election Day, uh, in my view, you're inviting fraud and you're, running, you're undermining confidence in the uh, administration of the elections, confidence in the elections themselves. And if we're kind of trying to get to a good policy result, I would, pro I would submit the best policy result is to encourage people to vote in person, encourage and require that uh, elections be decided on election day, uh, except in extreme circumstances. And I'm sure you know, there's always an exception that proves the rule. 
And you don't get to vote um, for any willy-nilly reason, uh, absentee, or, um, or even uh, have early in-person voting uh, for days and weeks prior to the election. We have to get back to election day. That, I think, is the best circumstance. Now, of course, the left, as I said, is pushing this idea that we should accept uh, and, and be okay with uh, counting ballots after Election Day and deciding elections in large numbers or in significant ways after Election Day. And, you know, that's, that's a political talking point. Uh, that is a partisan talking, talking point. It's an ideological talking point. And so uh, when they tell you you're supposed to accept it, as President Biden was doing this week, Twitter is also suppressing uh, criticism of such activity or such criticism of uh, uh, vote counting after Election Day. I mean, I noted in Brazil, uh, which just had a big election, they decided who they figured out. Brazil's a pretty darn big country, right? It's about three, nearly, nearly as big as the United States, 250 million people. So the point is they figured out who won on election night. France figured out who won on election night. And prior to 2020, <laughs> we used to figure out who won on election night, certainly at the presidential level. Uh, and uh, so the introduction of post-election day counting is a recent phenomenon and one which I think should be um, eliminated. Uh, but my thinking is still uh, the elections are going to go and the, the, the kind of the way the elections, um, uh, you know, the polls are showing um, and the polls tend to, in my view, undercount uh, support uh, for uh, Republicans uh, that uh, despite the gamesmanship that might go on, and I don't know if there's going to be any gamesmanship, but, uh, that, that, you know, we're going to generally have the outcome that I've talked about, which is a significant victory for Republicans. So what's going to happen then if the Republicans take charge, at least in the House, in 2023? Uh, they are talking about doing investigations, which would be welcome. Uh, the other issue, though, is what to what end, right? And what is it I mean? Well, first of all, you know, they say they need to do some investigations, which is true. But, you know, frankly, we already know a lot of what went on. I mean, what, what is it you need to investigate uh, about uh, the border disaster. You know, they could spend two years investigating the border disaster. We'd have another five million people walk across the border. It might be, so that's my way of saying they need to hold people accountable because they have more than enough to begin investigations or, or excuse me, impeachments of uh, officials involved in misconduct requiring impeachment or where impeachment would be an appropriate response. But what more do we need to know about the Justice Department and the FBI before we take steps to hold those agencies accountable and individuals within those agencies accountable? Uh, what, what more do we need to know about, for instance, the illegal loan program or loan forgiveness program that uh, Biden is pushing, spending $500 billion without congressional authorization, which is illicit and illegal, so figure out who's, 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 who made those decisions and hold them accountable. So, so I, I, I want there to be uh, investigations by Congress. Uh, let's be clear, though. Uh, the current proposed, let's put it this way, the, the likely House leadership isn't going to be as keen on investigations or impeachment or doing anything aggressive as Judicial Watch would be. I mean, that's, that's been the reality for decades and I don't see it changing next year. So if you want Congress to be aggressive in terms of accountability and transparency, uh, you need to let your uh, newly elected members of Congress know directly, but you should be supporting Judicial Watch as well because Judicial Watch uh, in the past has provided leadership for Congress as to where to look and how to look. And we plan to do that again uh, we were happy. We wanted to provide leadership even for the Democratic Congress, but they don't care about what we think because, uh, you know, they had a very different agenda than, at, uh, unfortunately, than protecting the rule of law. And you may say, well, of course they would. Well, that's not always the case. I mean, way back in the day, back when um, Nancy took over, Nancy Pelosi took over Congress in, I guess it was 2010, right? Uh, we worked with Nancy Pelosi's office on strengthening oversight and the ethics process 
on Capitol Hill in the House. So, you know, it's not like we're uh, unwilling to work uh, with folks that you'd be surprised about, like you know, left-wing Democrats. Uh, believe it or not, there are some leftists out there and liberals, I guess is the better way of putting it, who don't like government corruption. <laughs> you know, and uh, the partisan media would have you think that you can only oppose government corruption uh, you know, anyone who opposes government corruption does it for purely political purposes. No, that's not the case. There are good Americans on both sides of the aisle who uh, are aghast at government corruption, and uh, Judicial Watch is willing to work with all, all sides in that regard. Uh, but that being said, the Republicans uh, are uh, at least willing, uh, at least some of them are willing to take some more aggressive steps, and we'll work with them where we can, uh, but we're going to keep on doing our own thing. Uh, because, look, if I trusted Congress to get to the bottom of everything in terms of what needs to be done in terms of oversight, it would shut Judicial Watch down. So I don't think we're going to shut Judicial Watch down. And I suspect we're going to have a lot of work to do and a lot of leadership uh, to show uh, this next Congress when it comes in. So, uh, so election integrity, before I go, I want to remind you that if... Uh, if there's anything that you see happening at the polling place uh, or in the election process that you have concerns about, I encourage you, A, to report it to the responsible officials, you know, either at the polling place or locally. You know, call your state election hotline and send a detailed email to Judicial Watch at electionlaw at judicialwatch.org electionlaw at judicialwatch.org. I think we'll probably put up a graphic that will show you. Now, don't confront other voters if you think they're up to no good. That's not your job. It's the job of the police or the local, local, the local election officials or call your state election officials if you're not getting any, any response that you think appropriate from your local folks. But don't take the law into your own hands here. You know, you just are, you report what you see to uh, local officials, uh, the responsible government officials, and then you call Judicial Watch. So it's pretty simple. Uh, but don't, don't start confronting voters because you may think something's going wrong and nothing's going wrong and you end up causing a confrontation at a polling place that ends badly. So be careful there. And of course, you know, the left would just love that uh, for people who are, you know, concerned about fraud to get into back and forth with voters at the polling places. That would be, that would be terrible. So don't do that. Uh, so Judicial Watch obviously um, wants to know if there's any corruption on Election Day. But separately, as I've talked about before, we have several pieces of litigation in federal court uh, designed to make elections cleaner and more honest. We have, as I've talked about, this Illinois case. And plus, we have three federal cases in Pennsylvania, Colorado, and New York uh, to clean up the election rolls. So, uh, and I can guarantee you the election rolls in all three of those states are a little bit cleaner as a result of our filing the lawsuits, um, New York this year, Colorado and Pennsylvania last year. And so we expect um, as the cases conclude, and I think they eventually will conclude, uh, I'm, we're gonna have good news in terms of having, having cleaning, cleaner rolls in uh, all of those states, but it's an ongoing process. You know, I may not like vote by mail, but the reality is it's still out there and a lot of states do it. And uh, if you've got dirty voting rolls, uh, vote by mail is all the worse. As I've said before, dirty voting rolls can mean dirty elections. And it's bad enough when people are voting in person and you know, maybe they're not eligible to vote, no one's checking ID, who knows what's going on. Uh, but when you're mailing, I mean, all the checks of people voting in person, you know, people don't like to commit crimes in person. Uh, it's a lot easier for fraud to take place uh, when uh, the rolls are dirty and it, it just provides opportunities for skullduggery. And so that's why we need uh, cleaner election rolls. And that's why it's important to support Judicial Watch because there's no one doing more to ensure that the election rolls are clean. Certainly the Justice Department under um, Joe Biden is completely AWOL on this, and things weren't much better under Bill Barr or Jeff Sessions previously. Uh, so it's up to Judicial Watch to come in and do this basic work to clean up the election rolls. So uh, they're already cleaner for this election 
and they will be cleaner for 2024 as a result of our work. So the other big issue this week is the developments around the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk. He finally purchased Twitter. It went through last week and uh, the left has gone crazy. They've gone uh, bat sugar crazy. Uh, if I could, I'm not, that's the best way I'm going to put it. Just they're, they're aghast that there could be more free speech on Twitter. And as a result, uh, they're trying to destroy Twitter. Let's be blunt. They're trying to destroy Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk just announced today that advertising revenue is uh, dropped like a rock uh, because it looks like the left has been pressuring advertisers to either pause or pull out uh, their advertising from Twitter uh, because uh, they don't like the idea of uh, free speech on Twitter. And by free speech on Twitter, they're not meaning um, Twitter uh, going in and taking off pornography and things like that. They mean squelching speech like mine, squelching speech like Judicial Watch's, squelching speech like yours. You go on and you say the wrong thing about elections. If you complain about vote counting after the election day, they'll squelch your speech. They'll censor your speech. They'll suppress your speech. You know, not only on Twitter, but other big tech platforms. And, and uh, Elon Musk uh, hasn't gone, hasn't really fixed it yet, but he's obviously showing signs he wants to fix it. Uh, which is driving the left crazy. And uh, this week he was talking about talking, he talked to civil society leaders, all of whom were leftists, it looked like to me, all of whom support censorship about these issues. And as he noted in his tweet, you know, he's been trying to appease these activists and it's gotten him nowhere. Well, you know, we could have told him that, that's for sure. So, uh, you know, that's the challenge when you have uh, someone like Musk, who's relatively new to politics uh, and, and certainly these ideological battles uh, that, you know, they come in thinking, well, you know, maybe these folks will be operating in good faith. They're not operating in good faith. They'll destroy Twitter. They will destroy Twitter if need be. They don't have any interest in seeing it continue if they can't control it. That's the revolutionary left. The revolutionary left, which is communist in orientation, is in a, a situation, their approach these days is they will destroy institutions they can't control. And Twitter's on that list. And so I don't envy uh, Mr. Musk's position in this regard. But, you know, he's, he's, you know he, he's getting a quick education as to what's happening. Uh, and uh, he's seeing the way the left is playing games with him where he's trying to do the right thing, trying to accommodate them in terms of content moderation, what I call censorship. And uh, he's still, you know, they're still trying to destroy his company. And this is what I tweeted to Musk earlier um, this week. Elon Musk, left have countless billions, and we'll put the Twitter the tweet up there so you can read along. Left have countless billions, government entities, media, and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, focus like a laser on ensuring big tech and government suppress and censor online speech. Conservatives have a few social media accounts and a handful of groups fighting for online free speech. And uh, he drove the left crazy by responding. He said that assessment is more accurate than most people realize. And I don't know how anyone could argue with that assessment. The Biden administration wants to suppress online speech. Uh, virtually every major academic um, who studies this issue wants to censor online speech. Uh, you have all these new experts arising who are experts in disinformation. The left are creating these groups designed to suppress, quote, disinformation, which is censorship. They want to censor speech that is legal. Uh, and that otherwise uh, should not be censored because they disagree with it politically. And of course, you have uh, uh, you know folks like Soros and and other folks, you know, spending the money here. I and mean, of course, when the government's spending money on it, uh, that's where you're talking about billions. And the media has reporters who are designated, and their whole their whole mission is uh, to ferret out misinformation and get it suppressed online, and su to support the suppression of that. And so when you see the media talk about Elon Musk, their narrative is, oh, he's firing all these people at, at uh, Twitter. 
to save money because he's trying to save the company from falling on its face because uh, it's, it has too many people working for it who obviously aren't contributing to the bottom line. But their response is, oh, but will they be able to keep on censoring the way they want, that we want them to? Will they be able to suppress information and debates about elections, about COVID, about Ukraine, about transgender extremism, about abortion, you name it. I mean, the left thinks speech they, don't disagree, they disagree with is hate, and they think it is, is deserving of no uh, protections in the private or governmental spheres. So they oppose not only free speech, but the First Amendment. And uh, Musk is seeing that firsthand. So we'll see how it plays out. You know, you know Judicial Watch is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Uh, we're on all these other major media or social media platforms. We're constantly being censored and suppressed. I warned you a few weeks ago, we were talking about COVID. I'll be talking about it later. And I told you, there's going to be a Facebook warning about COVID, even though I'm just talking about either a lawsuit or documents we uncovered. I mean, I said COVID. So Facebook is going to have a warning. Last week, I was talking about abortion and a lawsuit that we had filed to uncover information about the safety of the abortion pill. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to cram down everyone's throats. I mean that figuratively. The, uh, that led to a, a vandalization of our video on YouTube where they said something about abortion health information. Well, first of all, in my view, abortion is not health care, it's killing. So it's propaganda that they were trying to stamp onto our video because we were exposing something they didn't like. And uh, so this is, this is what we're facing all the time here at Judicial Watch. And Elon Musk comes and he wants to do something more modest in terms of censorship because he's probably going to censor too much. You know, in the end, we'll probably disagree with him on what he considers to be content that shouldn't be allowed on Twitter. But that's not enough for the totalitarian left because the key phrase you have to remember is totalitarian. It's all or nothing for them. It's all or nothing for them. I mean, they're trying to put people in jail who disagree with them. Why is it surprising that they're focused on suppressing the free speech of tens of millions of Americans? I mean, you have the president of the United States pushing it. And it's just, as I noted on our tweet, it's groups like Judicial Watch, a few accounts, you know, that are somewhat big media accounts like mine, Judicial Watches, uh, some other accounts that, you know, are kind of standing against uh and are in a position to highlight these abuses of free speech and censorship. But everything else, all the, as I keep on saying, all the king's horses, all the king's men uh, in the government and in the private sector, more or less, uh, the kind of the left-wing media establishment, they've all decided to throw free speech out the window and to uh, try to upend the First Amendment. And we're going to stand against it. And we hope Elon Musk stands against, against it. Uh, so I would encourage you... I don't know if I would encourage you to get back onto Twitter immediately since the censorship is still there. But if you get in it, if you go, go back back on Twitter and see if you like it, uh, be careful about what you put on it because they will censor you still. Uh, but uh, uh, what they're doing to Twitter, I think, is could result in the end of Twitter uh, unless other good-thinking Americans come in and say, enough is enough. We oppose destroying people you disagree with. That's not the way, that's not the American way. So enough about current events. Uh, of course, everything we do is current, right? But we have uh, new lawsuits uh, on the, uh, the real scandal of our age, which is the uh, seditious attacks on Trump, the spying on Trump as a candidate, the harassment of him as president, uh, what I would consider to be sedition by the Obama administration targeting him in the transfer of uh, power. Uh, you know, they talk about January 6th as uh, uh, talking about that as being the, the great sin in terms of interfering with the transfer of power when in fact it was the Obama administration that was trying to gin up um, phony allegations against Trump 
through leaks and, and uh, uh, bad faith-based F- FBI uh, and national security spying operations to thwart his presidency. And that was orchestrated out of the Obama White House. And, you know, and since then, we've had the abuse continue, most recently with the baseless uh, or the, the outrageous and unprecedented and abusive raid of President Trump's home uh, by the Biden operation uh, and w- pretending that somehow records he had at the White House that he took with him uh, to uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago, his home, uh, he had no right to have when, in fact, that's a major legal dispute, as we've said, and it was pr- the exact opposite position of the Justice Department uh, in a case that Judicial Watch had pursued over documents that Clinton infamously kept in the sock drawer, recordings of phone conversations he was having with foreign leaders, for example. So you have this continued abuse of Trump that began during Obama, ha- continued through the agencies and the deep state during his administration and has accelerated and metastasized in some ways under the Biden administration. And Judicial Watch uh, is not going to forget about it. And we're going to keep on seeking accountability. First of all, these folks haven't left. So, you know, in many ways, it's the Obama administration part two, these past years of the Biden administration. Obama, you know, Obama's still hanging out here in the city, which is weird. And uh, in Durham is failing in his investigations. He lost uh, at trial uh, a few weeks ago again. And uh, so it looks like nothing else is going to be happening from him other than a report, which, you know, Judicial Watch could write a report, right? Well, we hire prosecutors to prosecute, not to write reports. Now, I guess under law, he's supposed to provide some type of report, but you know what I mean. He doesn't want to go after the big guys. He has shown no indication he will. So it's up to Judicial Watch, again, to keep on pursuing this important information. And to that end, we just sued the Obama Library for Obama White House records about the 2016 Russia collusion hoax. Now, uh, who, what, when I say the Obama Library, what do I mean? I mean the National Archives. So the National Archives that's harassing President Trump over these records issues are, is unlawfully hiding and stonewalling the release of information about the harassment of President Trump by Barack Obama. So harassing Trump while protecting Obama. So we filed two requests back in March. Uh, the first request was for records of former, of former Obama White House National Security Advisor Susan Rice, who now is in the Biden White House as, I think, domestic, she's chief of the Domestic Policy Council. She's the top domestic person. Uh, regarding alleged efforts by the Russian government to interfere with the 2016 presidential election and collude with the Trump campaign and um, the alleged hacking of Democratic National Committee and or Clinton campaign uh, computer systems. So, uh, Russiagate, right? And we know no American knowingly colluded with the Russians. Of course, they knew that too. So we want records about what the White House knew and when about that. And then there was this infamous meeting that took place on January 5th, 2017, literally a few weeks before President Trump was coming into office. And it took place in the Oval Office, and it was a meeting between President Obama, Vice President Biden, who, as you may know, is now President of the United States, Rice, uh, the corrupt FBI Director Comey, the corrupt CIA Director John Brennan, and the corrupt director of national intelligence, James Clapper. Now, uh, that's an interesting meeting because that's where they, you know, they were all talking about the conspiracy against Trump uh, that they knew at the time, and it was being reported to them, uh, really wasn't panning out in terms of having anything to back it up. So, surprise, surprise. Uh, But they didn't care, and uh, the next day, uh, and, and this discussion took place at this Oval Office meeting, uh, Comey went and harassed Trump and tried to confront him and see how he would react. He was president-elect of the United States with the fake dossier. It was, it was a conspiracy hatched, it looks like, based on the information that I've seen in the Oval Office. So what's really peculiar is that Susan Rice wrote an email on January 20th 
a few weeks after this meeting, pretending to memorialize it in a very convenient way, which I'll get into. And the, and the email was written on January 20th, as I said, which just happened to be the day that uh, President Trump was sworn in. I, I think it was like a few minutes before he was sworn in, the memo was written. So this was like a last ditch effort to paper the record. And this is what Susan Rice wrote. On January 5th, following a briefing by IC leadership, intelligence community, uh, which should be a dirty word after what they did to Trump, on Russia hacking during the 16, 2016 presidential election, hacking that the president had nothing to do with, Trump had nothing to do with, President Obama had a brief follow-on conversation with FBI Director Jim Comey, a Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, and the Oval Office, Vice President Biden and I were also present. So I, w I want you to think about that. They're having this broader meeting, right? You can, you can just see, uh, you've probably seen movies like this, and this is even worse than a movie because it's real life in terms of the corruption, where you get the meeting, right? And you know something's going on, and the big guy says, uh, you know, you guys stay here. I wanna talk about something with you. And that's when, that's when the corruption happens, right? The secret meeting after the big meeting. And this is the secret meeting with, with Comey and his top people, Vice President Biden, uh, Sally Yates, the corrupt uh, attorney general, um, deputy attorney general in the uh, uh, Justice Department. I think she was, um, no, I guess she was deputy there. She was acting attorney general for uh, Trump for a few weeks until he fired her for her ethical misconduct. So President Obama began the conversation by stressing his continued commitment to ensuring that every aspect of this issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities by the book. So this is the by the book email. He said, I'm going to tell you to do, this is how I interpret it, I'm going to tell you to do all sorts of things that are illegal, unethical, and contrary to your oaths of office. But, you know, Susan, Susan, don't worry. She's going to write an email about this, and she's going to say, I told you to do it by the book. Uh, the president stressed that he's not asking about initiating or instructing anything from a law enforcement perspective. He reiterated that our law enforcement team needs to proceed as it normally would by the book. There it is. That's the second time the phrase shows up. From a national security perspective, however... However, big however there, President Obama said he wants to be sure that as we engage with the incoming team, we are mindful to ascertain if there's any reason we cannot share information fully as it relates to Russia. So what he's saying is, I want to withhold national security information. The incoming president has a constitutional and uh, national that national security requires that he sees because we've got this Russia crap that we're still pushing. And we don't want them to know about it. Director Comey affirmed that he is proceeding by the book. There it is again, third time. As it relates to law enforcement, none of this is by the book. This email is obviously an after-the-fact CYA memo. From a national security perspective, and the reason they say national security is that means they can throw the rules out the, out the window in terms of spying on American citizens. They think that covers their, uh, covers their you-know-whats when it comes to spying. Oh, it's national security, so we can do whatever we want. Comey said he does, does have some concerns that incoming National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, General Flynn, is speaking frequently with Russian Ambassador Kislyak. Comey said that it, that could be an issue as it relates to sharing sensitive information. President Obama asked if Comey was saying that the NSC should not pass sensitive information related to Russia to Flynn. Comey replied, potentially. He added that he has no indication thus far that Flynn has passed classified information to Kislyak, but he noted the level of communication is unusual. So this is just smearing, right? They had nothing that, there was no information at the time that Kislyak and Flynn's communications were anything but appropriate. And yet you've got the Comey guy saying, potentially, judging whether or not to give him access to information he has a right to, constitutionally speaking. Talk about interfering with the peaceful transfer of power. This is Exhibit A. The president asked Comey to inform him 
if anything changes in the next few weeks that should affect how we share classified information with the incoming team. Comey said he would. This is a smoking gun, guys. This is the document that confirms that Barack Obama was personally involved in trying to restrict information uh, and the truth being told to, to Donald Trump about the schemes to smear him as being an agent of Russia. This is what this is about. And it's up to Judicial Watch to try to get the full truth of what went on by suing for records straight out of the Obama White House as to what happened. So what happens is under the presidential record system, we're able to get documents and they're supposed to be able to give them to us, I think, five years after he leaves office. And they're still hiding these records. And it's not like we said, give us every record Obama had as president. We asked for something very specific here. So even Comey confessed in his book uh, and again, targeted and fingered Obama as being having guilty knowledge that he talked with Obama about confronting Trump with the dossier the next day. The dossier that they all knew was false. Certainly uh, Comey knew. Obama did not appear to have any reaction to any of this, he wrote in, uh, Comey wrote in his book. At least none he would share with us. In a level voice, he asked, what's the plan for that briefing? With just the briefest of sidelong glances at me, Clapper took a breath, then said, we've decided that Director Comey will meet alone with the president-elect to brief him on this material following the completion of the full ICA briefing. So what happened is they were going to brief Trump the next day at Trump Tower. I think Clapper was going to be there. I think Brennan was there. And obviously Comey was going to be there. And again, Comey was going to stay around afterwards and, uh, and play spy against Trump. The president did not say a word. Instead, he turned his head to the left and looked directly at me. He raised and lowered both of his eyebrows with emphasis and then looked away. I suppose you can read whatever you want in that wordless expression, but to my mind, his Groucho Marx, I, Mar, Groucho Marx eyebrow raise was both subtle humor and expression of concern. It was almost as if, he were, as if he were saying, good luck with that. I began to feel a lump in my stomach. Well, beside, beside the hilarity of the officiousness of this crook Comey, it highlights the corruption at the highest levels in the Obama White House and the targeting of Trump. So they were going to try to entrap Trump the next day. And what happened was, based on my understanding of the various reports about it, is Trump said, what do you mean about this P-tape and dossier and what this is garbage? And he was outraged and he wanted it investigated because he knew it was false. And what did Comey do? He went downstairs to his... Um, to his car and started typing out Trump's response. So they were running an operation for, against Trump at that, at that meeting, orchestrated by Obama. And I don't care what's in this book, I want more information. What did Obama do? He didn't stop Comey from doing it. it had, he had his tacit approval. As I said in the release, the records we are seeking go to the heart of the Obama administration's efforts to undermine the incoming president and tie up his new administration with a phony scandal. And as I said earlier, the Obama library is part of the same National Archives system that is subjecting President Trump to unprecedented harassment while they're hiding and protecting this, these materials about what Obama was told. And this meeting that not only involves Obama, but you know who else? Vice President Biden. Because he had it in for Flynn, and obviously he had it in for Trump, and he was there. I want to know why Durham hasn't talked to all these people. At least publicly that we know about, he hasn't talked to any of them. And it's up to Judicial Watch to kind of swoop in again and do the heavy lifting to get this basic truth about the worst corruption scandal in American history. It's continuing. Because this records dispute down in Mar-a-Lago is just a kind of a, a, you know, part Z of this harassment of Trump that began arguably in 2000, this is my understanding, in 2015.
And now it's 2022 and they're showing no signs of stopping. I mean, they were, they're, they're, they've got a grand jury harassing Trump's aides this week, a few days before the election. Over the silly records fight. I get ticked about this stuff. So we're going to, I'll let you know when we get the documents. Hopefully we get some documents and um, we're able to blow the whistle on that. As I I've often observed, President Biden is the most corrupt president since he's been vice president. Meaning Obama uh, is giving him a run for his money in terms of corruption. Arguably even more corrupt, I would say. Because I'm giving... Biden just a little smidgen of a pass because of his cognitive challenges. You know, next up, um, and I hope the new Congress looks into this, and again, we've done most of the heavy lifting there already, is uh, the COVID vaccine and what's going on with that. Uh, why can't we get basic information about its safety studies uh, that were relied upon by the government in uh uh, as providing the basis for pushing it on the American people. If it is as wonderful as they say, if it is as safe as they say, if it is as effective as they say, they will be happy, wouldn't you think, to release all the studies that show that. But obviously, uh, it's not happening. Uh, Judicial Watch has, go, has had to go to court repeatedly to get basic information about the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines. Others have tried and have been desperate to go to court um, and actually have been going to court. There's been a big case in Texas that has gotten some study information out. Uh, but what, what's going to happen here? Is Congress going to hold these agencies to account for the gamesmanship and the shell games they've been playing with these documents? I hope so. Certainly we'll continue to, we'll, we'll continue to do our own investigation while pressing for accountability as best we know how out of Congress. So we sued the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Oh, now who runs that, you may ask? Dr. Fauci. So Fauci is involved, his agency, in the cover-up of vaccine safety study information. And we asked for records of all safety studies, data, reports, and, an and analyses produced by the Division of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases relating to the safety of vaccines and or gene therapies to treat and or prevent SARS-CoV-2 and or COVID-19 made by Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson & Janssen. All emails sent to and from the following DMID officials, that's the uh, Division of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases within the Fauci agency, the director, the head of the Office of Genomics and uh, advanced Technologies, the head of the Office of International Research in Infectious Diseases, the head of the Office of Regulatory Affairs, the head of the Office of Clinical Research Affairs, the head of the Clinical Re Trials Management Section, the head of the Virology Branch, the head of the Respiratory Diseases Branch, the head of the Influenza, SARS, and other Viral Respiratory Diseases Section. I'm so proud to work at Judicial Watch because only Judicial Watch has the necessary expertise to know where all these documents are going to be. Uh, because what happened with these COVID vaccine approvals is you had multiple agencies with inputs here. So you have FDA, you have HHS, you have CDC. HHS is, you know, CDC is a sub-agency of, of uh, HHS, but then you have HHS proper. And then you have NIAID, Fauci's group, and then you have uh, this subgroup within Fauci's agency. So in May of this year, the NIH had released a paper uh, out of the, um, essentially, that was con that had the Fauci group contribute. And it was based, it was titled Safety and Immunogenicity, I think, of a third dose of SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine, an interim analysis. And so, um, as you know from, or I hope you recall from prior Judicial Watch, exposés as to what was going on with the approval of these of this booster regime that uh, 
uh, there was a lot of internal debates, uh, certainly within the FDA, about whether this booster would do anything, whether it was needed, and there were questions about its safety that we exposed. So it's, again, up to Judicial Watch to come in and try to bust through the stone walls uh, that the uh, Fauci group, I call it Fauci Inc., has set up to protect themselves from accountability and scrutiny about their handling of this vaccine uh, regime. And, you know, and the arrogant cover-up of the COVID vaccine safety information also further undermines public confidence in these already controversial drugs. I mean, if you're hiding records about their safety and efficacy, of course it's going to give people who are paying attention pause. And Judicial Watch, as I've repeatedly said, is taking the lead on all of these issues. And I just want to go through, because it's worth highlighting uh, the important work we're, we've done here. And it, and, and it kind of reemphasizes that, you know, Congress has a lot of work to do, but we've done, uh, we've already clear cut a path forward because we have this information out there. And what are they going to do with it? In October, we uncovered FDA records regarding the COVID booster vaccines earlier this month uh, that show that, um, that one of the FDA people who resigned because he didn't like the way things were going said available evidence doesn't yet indicate a need for the COVID vaccine booster shots among the general population. In July, uh, NIH records that we uncovered revealed an FBI inquiry into the NIH's controversial back coronavirus grant tied to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We found that the FBI was investigating these gain-of-function grants that Fauci was affiliated with. The records also show uh, that Fauci's officials were concerned about gain-of-function research in China all the way back, and not only in China, but in Wuhan specifically, all the way back to 2016. And that EcoHealth, which was the vehicle for doing a lot of this gain-of-function research that is so controversial, They, they were worried about them doing gain-of-function again, all the way back in 2016. FDA records show top officials being pressured by companies in the Biden administration to impose timeline, timelines on approval for the booster shots that make no sense. And that wasn't just the Biden administration. Generally, it was the Biden White House that was doing that. We found that in uh, between 2014 and 2019, over $825,000 was given to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for bat coronavirus research by the NIAID. That's Fauci's group. We found that. No one knew about that number until Judicial Watch uncovered it. We found that Fauci's agency gave nine China-related grants to EcoHealth Alliance to research coronavirus emergence in bats and was the NIH's top issuer of grants to the Wuhan lab itself. The records also included an email from the vice director of the Wuhan lab asking an NIH official, and this is a classic one, uh, for help finding disinfectants for de decontamination of airtight suits and indoor surfaces. So this Wuhan level four lab, level four is, means it's supposed to be really secure and safe, they didn't know how to keep it disinfected. I mean, I, I could have been running things over there with the way things were going. Calling up NIH, you know, what sort of Lysol should I use to keep it clean? That's what was going on. And Fauci knew this was happening. Or ha had happened. So I could go on and on. HHS records show the State Department and Fauci knew immediately in January of 2020 that China was withholding COVID da data and yet they praised their cooperation later. Fauci personally did that. HHS records regarding biodistribution studies and related data for the COVID-19 vaccines show a component, a key component of the vaccines, lipid nanoparticles, which is the kind of the vehicle through which the RNA is shepherded into the body, were found outside the injection site, mainly the liver, adrenal glands, spleen, and ovaries of test animals, eight to 48 hours after injection. My guess is you're smart enough to know that's pretty outrageous because they told us that necessarily, that you know, we didn't really have to worry about those particles and, and the sp spike proteins getting past 
essentially your lymph nodes on your arm, under your arm, once you were injected with the vaccine. That wasn't the case. And there's more, but I'm not going to get into it all with you because I don't think I can, uh, my blood pressure will take it. So I don't know how better I can explain to you than what I just did in terms of the significance, historic significance of Judicial Watch's work in uncovering what went on with uh, COVID-19 and the vaccines, uh, which uh, the scandal, which is continuing to this day. So you can see that between election integrity exposing the corruption of the Obama administration, exposing the corruption of the Biden administration, holding the Republicans in Congress accountable uh, to make sure they do what they promised to do and what they should do just as members of Congress in monitoring and stopping government corruption, all the while keeping up our own historic anti-corruption work in the courts and elsewhere. Uh, showing Judicial Watch's leadership role in standing up for free speech online against the predations of the totalitarian left that wants to destroy free speech and the First Amendment. Uh, you know, is there anyone who is doing the work as, comprehens- as comprehensively as Judicial Watch is on behalf of the rule of law and our Republican form of government? I don't think so. And I want others to be doing it too, but in the meantime, Uh, We're going to do it um, as best we're able because we think the country is worth saving. And we are able to do it with your support. And again, I encourage you, if you're already supporting Judicial Watch, think about supporting us again. If you're not supporting Judicial Watch, please join our cause, join our movement. And I know not everyone can provide us financial support, uh, but your prayers are welcome. And in the least, help educate your fellow citizens about the work we're uncovering. Everything we're talking about is on our website at judicialwatch.org, judicialwatch.org. And be sure to follow us on social media as well. Uh, the left uh, is abandoning Twitter. Maybe that's a sign for you to go to Twitter. We're at, at Tom Fitton and at Judicial Watch. We're on Facebook. We're on Trump's True Social. We're on Rumble. We're on YouTube. We're everywhere uh, where the American people are so we can educate them on uh, uh, so that this country uh, is lives up to the promises of the Founding Fathers. And with that, I wish you the best, and I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.